In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We spend this season of Advent talking about uh, the preparation for the coming of the Lord. And uh, in that preparation discussion, we talk about the, um, the, the prophets that come before, and we talk about that holy remnant that came before. We talk about the preparation of Zechariah and Elizabeth for the birth of John the Baptist, and uh, we talk about uh, Mary and Joseph and for the Annunciation. The Annunciation is when, uh, uh, when the Archangel Gabriel goes to Mary and says, a child will be born unto you. The Holy Spirit comes to her, uh, and uh, Christ is made incarnate. God becomes man in the womb of the Virgin. That's the Annunciation. And Howard's pointing to the icon uh, for that feast there. So you can see on the left the Archangel Gabriel. And you can see on the right uh, the Virgin Mother. She's uh, clothed always in blue and red. Uh, the blue for her humanity and the red for the divinity that's put on over her. And then you can see uh, the Holy Spirit in the very top. There's that, uh, that blue portion there. And so there's like this uh, gust of wind that comes down that's pointing uh, towards her to uh, show the Holy Spirit coming upon her and uh, Christ dwelling within her. So Gabriel announces the birth of our Lord and we call the feast of that day the Annunciation. That is always March 25th and that's a very ancient day because uh, God uh, becomes incarnate. It's the feast of the incarnation. He becomes uh, man. He becomes flesh on March 25th and that's actually a very ancient day. It's much more ancient than uh, our celebration of the birth and Christmas um, because that is uh, you know, the preeminent uh, day of, uh, of, of Christ's um, ministry, right, when he becomes man. So then uh, we have, uh, usually, uh, where Jesus the Good Shepherd is, we usually have this icon that I'm holding in my hands, uh, because the next, you can go ahead and sit down, Howard, because the next feast that comes is the visitation. So after God becomes, uh, becomes man and he dwells in the womb of the virgin, the second thing that happens is that uh, the Virgin Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, her cousin. And uh, this is called, of course, uh, the visitation uh, in the ancient church. And so that's what we're celebrating this morning. Your bulletins say Annunciation, and that's not what the reading is. It's not really what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating uh, this event. And, uh, you know, I say that the incarnation, that the, the, the Annunciation is really the preeminent feast over Christmas. It was for centuries. That's not to say, obviously, that the birth of Jesus isn't important, and certainly not to say the visitation isn't important. We can't pull a thread out of the tapestry of the life of Christ and expect to have the same beautiful pattern. So we're not pulling threads out and saying this one isn't as important or that one isn't as important. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, we're remembering the, the preeminent eminence of, of God becoming man. This feast of the visitation is a very important one, and uh, we're going to get to it in a minute. Um, before, we're going to look at the prophet Micah, and we're going to look at what the promises were to the people of God. What was it that they were expecting? What would Mary and Elizabeth have been looking for? Uh, what would they have been expecting? Of course, they're expecting that uh, the, the Savior is going to be in Bethlehem because he's coming from the uh, line of David, and Bethlehem is the city of David. 
And so they're expecting that Bethlehem will receive that, that important blessing. Of course, Judah is, um, is, is the tribe that is uh, the tribe of David. And so the tribe of Judah and the city of Bethlehem are going to be this focal point, this center place where they're expecting the promises that were made uh, to King David. What is it that they think that they're going to be promised? They think that they're going to be promised uh, someone who is going to be born, uh, who is going to come to them to save them from the oppression, the tyranny of these uh, surrounding powers, these superpowers, if you will, of the Assyrians, uh, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. They're looking for somebody who's going to save them from that. And so they're looking for a child. Indeed, they've been looking for the birth of a child for many centuries. The, the vision that they're given of the, of the Messiah is a very important one, and it's one that uh, strangely had, has been lost uh, in the time between uh, Micah and the birth of Jesus, and it's been lost in our day as well. This idea that um, God is going to come with us and that he's going to make a home with us. Uh, we keep getting this idea that we're going away, uh, that for our salvation we're going to, uh, to be going uh, someplace else. When the vision that's given to us is that God is coming to us and that he's going to come as a shepherd. He's going to come uh, as one who will care for us and protect us. And so that's the vision that's given here. The shepherd of his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name and they will dwell secure. That's what a shepherd does for us. A shepherd comes and sets out borders, right? The shepherd says, uh, this is how far you can go. This is the pasture land. This is the enclosure where you're going to sleep. The shepherd sets limits and borders, and that's what God does for us. He sets limits and borders. He says, uh, this is where you're going to work and live. These are the behaviors that you're going to have. And if you go outside of that border, you go outside of that limit, there's going to be danger. There's going to be consequences. And so that's what the Lord does for us. He says, here's the borders of your behavior. Here's how you can live. Uh, you're going to live in this way, in righteousness. You're going to live in love. You're going to live in faith. You're going to live in hope. And if you go outside of that, uh, then you're going to be exposing yourself to danger. So he sets this border, and then the shepherd always dwells within the enclosure with the sheep. The shepherd has to be out uh, with the sheep, and he's always uh, dwelling with them, right? He's sleeping amongst the sheep and dwelling with them. And that's, again, the promise uh, that they had been looking for, that the Messiah would come and would dwell with them. He would make their home with them. And indeed, that's the promise that we, too, look for, is for Christ to dwell with us, for him to make his home with us, for him to, to be at peace with us. And the, the, the language that's given here is very important. So he's a shepherd who sets a boundary. He says, these are the limits of the life that you will live. I'm going to live with you. And then he says, I will be your peace. See, now that's, again, very different. We, we fall into a language, again, of us going away to heaven. And we also fall into a transactional language. Maybe because we're such a mercantile society, right? We get this transactional or mercantile understanding of Christianity. If I do this, then God's going to give me this. Right? And I'm going to walk away. So um, I say a prayer, or I get baptized, or I participate in some uh, religious rite. I read my Bible, say my prayers, and then the Lord's going to, in transaction, give me peace. And then I'm going to walk away with this peace. Right? Uh, oh, look at the peace of the Lord that I got. 
And somehow we get this understanding that we can have peace apart from God. Or that we can occasionally go back to Him and get a little bit more peace and then go away and do our thing. Right? I'm going to go and I'm going to get a little bit of peace at church. I'm going to get a little peace at prayer and then I'm going to go live my life. That's a mercantile understanding. What God is saying here is that He will be their peace. Do you see that last line of Micah chapter 5, verse 5? And He shall be their peace. It's not He'll give them peace. He is the peace. So we can only have peace when we are in relationship and dwelling with He who is peace. He doesn't give peace. He is peace. He is hope. He is love. He is light and life. And we have those things when we dwell with Him, when we're with Him, and when He's with us. So that's the expectation that we see uh, when we see this moment between the Virgin Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth seems to check all the categories for what we would expect of this mother of the Messiah. Indeed, those who are looking at the scriptures closely, who are reading Micah, are saying, okay, in the hill country of Judah, right, in, in, the, in the line of David is going to come a prophet who is going to be born to a woman. That's clear in the prophets. What kind of a woman would we expect? Well, if you look back and you think about Sarah, elderly without children, you look at Hannah, without children, you look at the parents of, um, of uh, Samson, Manoah and his wife, without children, Manoah and his wife maybe are the closest example because you'll remember that they say something very similar to what uh, Archangel Gabriel says to Zechariah. Uh, he will be like a Nazarite, right? He will not have strong drink. He'll live this life kind of apart. And this is exactly, if you remember what uh, the angel tells Samson, right? That Samson is going to live, you know, as a man apart. He's not going to have strong drink. He's not going to cut his hair. He's going to live kind of as this wild man, right? Like outside of society. So that's exactly the kind of uh, framework that we get, the understanding that we get with John the Baptist. So you can see that Elizabeth seems to be fulfilling all of these roles that we see for the prophets that have come before, for the vision that's come before when the Lord has reestablished his covenant or he strengthened his covenant or he's, he's reminded the people of his covenant. He often does it with these women uh, that don't have a child and the Lord comes and promises them a child. And of course, that's exactly the situation that Elizabeth and Zechariah are in. And of course, uh, uh, Zechariah is... Uh, you know, a priest in the temple. So we get that, that added symbolism then of the Lord coming to dwell in his holy of holies. So you can see we get promise upon promise upon promise with Elizabeth and the fulfillment. And, and this is where we would be expecting uh, the Messiah to come from. Indeed, for John's whole life, people come to him and they ask him, are, are you the Messiah? Because he seems to be fulfilling that promise. And yet the Lord seems to say, here is this person, this is the, the most perfect that you can get as a human being, right? Here's John the Baptist, and Jesus says that about John, right? Uh, the greatest man who was ever born of a woman is John the Baptist. So this is the best 
that we have to offer as people. This is the best that can happen to to the people of God is John the Baptist, right? If we're going to fulfill that promise. And then the Lord says, that is the best that you can offer. And guess what? Not good enough. He still can't save you from sin because he's in sin. He still can't bring you into God's peace because he is not peace. He can't give you himself. John the Baptist in the end is not peace. He's not love. And the promise that God had is that I will be your peace and dwell with you. So the promise in the end was God giving us himself. John can't fulfill that. Where does he fulfill it? The Lord seems to say, I'm going to take this one step further. You thought that it was amazing that these ladies that didn't have children would have a child. You thought that it was amazing that elderly women would have a child. Try a 14-year-old girl that doesn't have a husband. She knows no man. She's a virgin. And she will bear a child. So the Lord comes upon the Virgin Mary in the Annunciation and in her humility, her incredible humility and obedience, the Lord comes upon her and dwells within her. He takes her flesh and joins his divinity to all of our humanity, indeed to all of creation. And once he's dwelling as a baby in the womb of the virgin, the purposes of salvation are set into play. God has done something amazing here. He's creator God. And the closest that you can think to creator God dying, besides the dying that he does upon the cross, is to become man. For what could be lower than creator God dwelling on high in the universe than becoming a human baby, the most helpless of all creatures? who take years in order to finally uh, participate in their own safety. He dwells within the womb of the virgin. He who had created all of the universe, in effect, dies and goes into the womb of the virgin to become helpless as a baby. And when he does that, he not only makes it possible that that flesh that he takes will have the purposes and the eternity of divinity, but he transforms all of humanity. Now all of human flesh is enabled to participate in eternity with God because he has joined his divinity to the flesh of her humanity in the womb. Now the stage is set, and you might think that he's going to rest for nine months, which is, of course, 40 weeks, which is a very important time, right? 40 weeks, you've heard this one before. The 40 days of the flood, the 40 years in the wilderness. So now the Lord is going to spend 40 weeks in the womb of a virgin. Talk about wilderness. Talk about restoration. Talk about washing away. But he doesn't just rest in the womb. Work is to be done. You can see that the response of the virgin is a very powerful response. When she hears that Elizabeth is also bearing a child, does she just happen to make her way to the hill country? No, we read that she goes with haste. That is, that she is doing it on purpose with diligence. And I would give to you that anything that we're going to do, anything that we're going to do in our lives, needs to follow this very simple pattern. 
What does the virgin do? She hears from God first. So she waits upon the Lord and she hears from him. Then when she recognizes that there is ministry for her to do, she needs to visit her cousin. She doesn't meander. She on purpose with diligence goes in haste to meet her. So when we hear from the Lord, our response needs to be with diligence and purpose to go and do that work. So she with diligence and purpose goes and meets with Elizabeth. And then what we see is this isn't just a, a, you know, a little bit of coffee and sitting around chatting. When she speaks, when the virgin speaks, Elizabeth says that the Holy Spirit comes upon her and upon her child. So Mary is bringing the Holy Spirit with her and, and bestows the Holy Spirit the way we understand it being bestowed in baptism and confirmation, chrismation. The Holy Spirit is bestowed upon Elizabeth simply by the voice of the Virgin greeting her. And now what do we see? At the apex of history, at the center of all human history, who do we see? Two pregnant women. We could spend a long time talking about that, couldn't we? Two pregnant women who have been obedient to God, who have listened for His voice, who have maintained themselves within the secure dwelling of the shepherd, have received the Holy Spirit and they greet one another in love. And within their wombs, is all the promises of God's prophets and all the promise of God himself dwelling in the womb of the virgin. And when they greet one another, the Holy Spirit is active and alive between them. This is the church. This is what we're supposed to be doing. God is supposed to be dwelling within us. He is supposed to be making his home within us. And when we greet one another in the name of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is active between us. This is what we're supposed to be doing. What these two women do on that day. And what stands at the heart of that relationship between God and His Son and God and the Virgin Mary. The writer of the Hebrews puts it forth and he tells us twice. He says, Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. He says it twice. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's quoting there from Psalm 40. And then just in case you missed it, Again here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I have come to do your will, and by that will we have been sanctified. By that will we have been sanctified. We haven't made ourselves holy. God has made us holy. Christ has made us holy by his obedience to the Father. Because he was obedient to the Father, he has done the will of God and made us holy by joining his humanity to our divinity. Because Elizabeth and Mary were obedient to God and did his will, they made a place secure 
They made a dwelling where God could come into their hearts and be in their midst by their devoting their will to the Father. And what he does in that will is to offer himself as a sacrifice. And that is the same call that we have here today. The same call that these two ladies obeyed over 2,000 years ago is the call that we have today. To listen for the voice of God and to be obedient in doing His will. We listen for His voice and we are obedient to His will. When we do that, God is present and dwells in our midst and in our hearts And when we respond in the love and peace that comes from Christ himself dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit is made alive and full, and we become the church, the body of Christ. May we be obedient to his will, and may he dwell with us secure this day and forevermore.